Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is neither investment, legal, nor tax advice and does not represent the opinions of the employers of the host or guest. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. We're going to talk today about a topic that's about as welcome as a trip to the dentist, the IRS audit. The concept of a tax audit can trigger the shakes. However, for anyone engaged in wealth planning, whether the family or the advisor, it's important to have a handle on it. Judge Learned Hand said, anyone may so arrange his tax affairs that his taxes shall be as low as possible. He's not bound to choose that pattern, which will best pay the treasury. There's not even a patriotic duty to increase one's taxes. But what happens when the IRS disagrees with the way you've arranged your affairs? What do you do when you receive fan mail from the IRS or the state taxing authority? Kelly Miller, partner at Reed Smith and ActTech fellow, takes us on a quick tour of why the IRS audits people and what the IRS is looking for. Then we dive into what to expect when you receive an audit letter and the process and best practices in dealing with it once you get it. The episode is full of good information on an uncomfortable but vital topic for families that are pursuing complicated planning that may catch the attention of the tax man. Welcome aboard, Kelly. Hi, Frazier. Thank you so much. It's so great to be speaking with you today. Well, I'm thrilled to have you on. Unfortunately, we're going to be talking about something that when clients get a note in the mail from the IRS, that tends to be really unpleasant. But there is some comfort in that if you think about it in a sort of organized fashion, that it can be slightly less painful than a pure audit function. When you're doing planning and you're leading people through the process of both tax and estate and just general asset protection planning and things like that. How frequently does the audit word come up and how does that work when you find out that someone has gotten a note from mom, let's say, mother IRS saying, you know, we don't agree with what you did? So as practitioners, it is very imperative that we approach our work and we approach our clients with this I think theme, no one should be required to pay more tax than they are legally obligated to do so. Now, with that said, you never decide to undertake planning with a view to whether or not the client will be audited. That type of analysis, I really prickle at because it, to me, flies in the face of our ethical duties as lawyers. Now, that said, clients certainly do ask, and we are prepared to answer questions relative to audits, the frequency of audits, and what happens during the audit process. For most of my clients, when we file a 706, the Form 706 is the U.S. estate and gift tax return, it's more likely than not with the estates that we work with in our practice, and that is estates of persons who die, whose net worth is somewhere north of probably $50 million. And they die with an estate that may have a taxable component, may not, depending on the planning that they've done prior to our work with them or during our work with them. It's most likely that they will undergo some type of routine audit by the IRS. I would tell you that certain types of planning over the years have landed on what the IRS has called its focus list or sometimes its dirty dozen list. So things like syndicated conservation easements, use of credits, I would say in the estate and gift tax arena, certainly some transactions involving split dollar life insurance. There are some transactions that the service has over time sort of developed a knowledge of, an awareness of, and looking at certain issues. In a state, it could be simple as the valuation of assets, the value reported on the 706, and the IRS is going to look at those values to determine whether or not those values are true and accurate, right? Because that is what the estate tax would be based on. So over time, you do develop in the practice, and we've developed, and it does change, certainly, 
some areas that the service will focus on. And so whether you're in a state and gift or you're simply in a 1040 or a partnership tax audit, you're looking for, you know, whether or not the taxpayer has engaged in listed transactions, has underreported or not reported income, has treated gain as capital when it may in fact really be ordinary in nature. On the state level, you look at issues related to domicile and residence, which continues to be an issue. And in fact, I think will become a more prominent issue as we look to the age of digital nomads and the evolution of the workforce in a post-COVID-19 world. We can look at things like the deductions, the credits that have been, like I said, reported on the return. And so all of those sorts of things traditionally have been areas that the IRS has focused on traditionally. And where does the service get its data? There is, in fact, just like we're familiar with the social media constructs, there is an algorithm. There is an element of analysis that the IRS has employed over many years to determine when when a taxpayer has an income level of a certain amount, what would then be the relevant or appropriate expected, if you will, I think is the best way to look at this areas and amounts of deduction. What would a taxpayer that reports $100,000 of adjusted gross income truly have spent in charitable giving, have in terms of deductions and the like? And so the IRS has over the years built up that data like any agency and is able to use that data to look for taxpayers whom it may feel have filed a return that may be an error. So in the estate and gift tax arena, when you have a 706 filed because of the amount of the lifetime exemption still being relatively large, right now it's almost $13 million per individual. When you see a 706 filed, it's not a question of if that return will be looked at. It's just a question of when will that return be looked at. In the context of a partnership and a 1040, 1041, other types of returns, 709 audits, gift tax audits, those audits tend to be a little bit more nuanced and are based on how the IRS amalgamates this data, looks at the taxpayer's return, and I think determines areas that they've either developed over that list, like I mentioned, of specific issues that it's been focused on, or looks to its data and says whether or not we think that this taxpayer may or may not have some areas of concern. And the one last thing I'll say about sort of like how the IRS, you know, looks for issues, we're talking here in the civil construct, right? So recall that the IRS has the function of, again, ensuring that every taxpayer has filed a true and accurate return. And that typically begins with an inquiry at the civil level. Civil audit is really looking at the return that's been filed, is the return accurate, and it is not focused on whether there is this additional layer, as I like to look at it, of the taxpayer's behavior and intent, and whether or not there are indicia that the taxpayer has acted in a way to willfully, knowingly, and with intention acted to evade or avoid the payment of taxes. Those cases get looked at in a very different light and in fact, an entirely different department of the service, the IRS criminal investigations unit would take up a case. Cases are referred by the civil division Certainly an audit, your goal with any client is to keep the case in the civil division. And most cases, in my experience, are resolved in the civil division. However, all taxpayers should be aware that there is the possibility that a case could be referred by a civil exam over to the criminal division. And there are, in fact, some instances where the IRS criminal investigations unit becomes aware of cases. One that I recall from being on a recent panel in New York, the New York area, metropolitan area, I was on a panel recently with a member of the Internal Revenue Services Criminal Investigations Division, and we were speaking about influencers and entertainers. And the topic of reality television stars came up. And in fact, it has been the case where 
persons who have either become notorious through the internet, through YouTube, through reality television, and their actions, the way they live, their expression of wealth (laughs) has raised the inquiry of the criminal division at the IRS. And in fact, the IRS criminal division does often look at the taxpayer's lifestyle is this is one of the factors to look at the taxpayer's lifestyle versus the return that's filed. So if you have a return that is filed where the taxpayer is claiming very little taxable income, but yet has, and I'm just using this as an example, I don't have a basis to know that this would be the case, but I suspect it would be, you know, a Maserati SUV in the driveway and, you know, a Mercedes SUV right next to it and going on lots of vacations and taking, you know, private chartered planes and things, there's a disconnect. So certainly that type of fact pattern will often trigger, if not a civil investigation, it may originate with a criminal division. You know, I think if we pull it back a little bit from, you know, I think the general notion is, oh my gosh, the IRS is underfunded. They just got this huge allocation from the federal government because they don't have enough people to do the audits. You're dealing with a sophisticated organization here. They have computers, they have data, they have people thinking about these things. It's not like you're dealing with people back in 1950s desks with uh, rotary clocks on the wall. That's right. That's right. The IRS has in recent years, and I think you know, we certainly saw this with Commissioner Reddick and Charles Reddick, Chuck, as many of us know him in the practice, was a seasoned, experienced, and is a brilliant tax litigator. So I think one of the impacts of his administration as commissioner that will last for years, quite frankly, is not just his focus on the people of the IRS, which he did without fail, but also this focus on the level of sophistication of the taxpayer and meeting that level of sophistication with the technological power that the IRS needs in order to go after, if you will, these bad actors. So we are seeing an additional focus on cryptocurrency, digital assets, the movement of money around the United States. As one tax agent said to me recently, We simply follow the money, Kelly. And when we follow the money, we will get what we're looking for. So you're absolutely right, Frazier. It is a sophisticated organization. It is a sophisticated agency. And let's recall, and I think we've seen this even in very recent news stories, it's not necessarily the crime of conspiracy or another type of crime that will, quote unquote, bring down actors. It's often the crime of tax evasion (laughs) that, in fact, is a crime that we find people are facing. So you're right. It's a sophisticated agency. It is a learned agency. It is an agency built on years and years of experience. And it has finite resources. So one of the things that clients will grapple with, and I, I do hear this occasionally from clients is, you know, why is a service going after me? Why am I being audited when I see my next door neighbor and I know he doesn't report all of his income from his small business where he takes deductions for things like his kid's birthday party because he invites clients to it? We don't have a perfect system and we never will have a perfect system. But I think truly, you know, the service has been focused on making the system one where the taxpayer is held to the standard of reporting and paying the tax that he, she, or it in the form of an entity is legally required to do so. So we will see. It's yet to be determined what the impact of the recent legislation will be that has increased the budget of the IRS. There's been a lot written about how that money will be used, but I will tell you, and I think that you know your listeners should take this to heart as well, the Internal Revenue Service its core of agents and auditors, especially in gift and estate tax, is a very old cadre right now. It's quite unusual that in the areas of partnership tax, especially where we have the new BBA regime that came into play after 2018 forward and in estate and gift, that we have an experienced team of auditors. There just has not been there haven't been the resources to invest in hiring new auditors and new agents. Okay. And so we hope that these funds will be used to hire a new team of agents who then will be adequately trained 
And that's the other fee. So even if this money goes into the budget and the service is able to hire new agents, we likely won't see those agents trained and sort of out in the force, if you will, for a good 14 to 16 months. And that's just simply the cycle of the government and how things work. But certainly those of us in the practice do expect that there is a focus on compliance because as has been stated in the legislative histories of these acts that have passed recently, there's a notion that the compliance is the missing link between our deficit and being able to raise revenue from taxpayers who may be underreporting or not reporting income or taking deductions to which they are not entitled, since all deductions are a matter of legislative grace, but they are not entitled to the deductions that they're claiming. Quick aside, I mean, the IRS, in addition to, you know, sort of bringing on and trying to jam experience down new folks as fast as possible, we hope, they're going to see probably a new influx of examples. The Corporate Transparency Act is probably going to surface a lot of different cases and audits that may not have existed before. Maybe take a second to talk about that. It's a bee in my bonnet that there's going to be a lot of new and different compliance around a lot of let's call it tactics that we've used in the estate planning world and beyond from a tax perspective that the Treasury Department is going to focus on. That's probably not too big a leap for them to sort of say, hey, you know what, we see something we aren't comfortable with. IRS, is this something you're comfortable with? Do you anticipate an influx? I mean, certainly. I mean, when you look at the Corporate Transparency Act, I see it as a natural progression of what we saw in the concentration on FATCA and the look at where our clients are keeping their money worldwide. Are they reporting all their sources of money and assets that produce income and reporting that income and their ability to hold money overseas to the government, right? And the CTA is really, the Corporate Transparency Act is really in the same vein, an anti-money laundering law, right? It's a law that seeks to prevent bad actors from concealing their ownership of corporations, limited liability companies, and other similar types of entities here in the United States to facilitate money laundering, financing of terrorism, tax fraud, and a host of other potentially illegal acts. And so by giving the government this trove of information in the form of who are the beneficial owners of entities, the government through its policy of and a public policy of needing to protect national interest and better enforce our treasury laws and better collect revenue has now this ability to use the Corporate Transparency Act to get information. But just like FATCA, any type of information source, right, is just that. It's a source. And unless the government has a reason to use that source or sees a disconnect or something concerning in that source, which I think we've yet to determine what that will look like, obviously, because the CTA doesn't go into effect until next year. We don't know what in practice this is going to translate into in terms of increased audit, increased inquiry. However, I will say that coming out of the world of FATCA and the FinCEN Form 114, which is often called the FBAR, the foreign bank accounting records, show that what the taxpayer owns or has a beneficial interest in provides a roadmap to treasury and then to the service to determine if the taxpayer has not adequately or properly disclosed those assets in the past or perhaps not reported income from them. So I think that these laws in some, whether it's the FATCA laws, which have been on the books since the 70s, the Corporate Transparency Act, which will go into effect on January 1st, 2024, you know, these are tools that allow the Treasury Department to determine if what the taxpayer is telling the Internal Revenue Service on its return is consistent with the information that it has reported or even not reported on these forms, or if it hasn't complied with these forms with the requirements to produce them and file them. So it will definitely be another tool, but the question is, is it going to be just an overwhelming amount of information that it doesn't really arise in uptick of audits, 
or is it a tool that will be used in audits that are going to occur anyway or are ongoing to determine if a taxpayer has been 100% compliant? And I think I think in the short term, we're going to see more of the latter than the former. And there will be a shift over time where we'll see audit programs, audit strategies, and compliance audit strategies coming out of the data mind from CTA. But I don't think that that will happen in the short term. You know, these things will take time and they have to get their arms around just intaking the information. (laughs) Sure. That's right. That's right. So let's get to the gist of what happens when a client gets that unfortunate piece of fan mail from the IRS and the process that they should undertake. In my sort of circumstance, hopefully I'm dealing with clients that this reminder is not necessary, but I try to remind people that number one, all right, you're dealing with a government agency and one that can make things hurt really badly. (laughs) It's important to be honest, prompt, complete, clear and organized, and then ultimately consistent and coordinated, not only in dealing with the IRS, but, you know, the other taxing authorities, state and local and other government authorities, you know, whether you're registered with the SEC or something like that. Take us through a little bit about the process when a client calls you and says, hey, I just got an audit letter. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you just reviewed a list of exemplar behavior that I wish all clients came to us with and practitioners, quite frankly, operated from. A client will typically send a letter and say, you know, I've received this. The IRS is looking at my return. I don't understand why I give everything to my accountant. I trust my accountant and I don't know what happened. Or they'll say, we expected this because we've been audited before. They're looking at this again. We've already been through this a million times. Why do they keep pestering us? Or they may say, especially if it's arising from something like a conservation easement or some other type of partnership that has already been audited or entity that's been audited, we knew this was coming and you know we are concerned about advice that was given to us before. So there could be many different responses to a client's receipt of an audit letter. But the first thing we like to do is just to ensure that it is, in fact, the IRS opening an audit. Sometimes the IRS will ask simply for clarification or additional information to support a deduction taken or a position taken or income reported on a return. The IRS, of course, has an income matching system that operates through the intake and review and matching of the amounts reported on the W-2s and the 1099s. So this is very low-hanging fruit. So it could be that there may have been a mismatch in income reported, and it's simply a matter of clarification. Double reporting or double counting of income has often happened too, depending on how the return's been filed. So this could be as simple as clarifying the taxpayer's position, providing additional information or explanation, and having very little to no change or adjustment ultimately result. If the letter is opening an examination, the letter will contain the name and contact information of an examiner or tax auditor. That person will request information be sent to him or her. And there may be a list of initial questions and a reply date in the letter given to the taxpayer. I think what I would suggest to anybody who's listening to this, who receives a letter, who is this is their first foray into being audited by the Internal Revenue Service, especially if they don't prepare their own taxes and they have a tax return professional prepare the returns, is that you want to make sure that you're speaking with a lawyer at the beginning and the outset of an audit. And oftentimes what I find is that clients will turn back to their tax return preparer, which is a natural response. Hey, I got this letter. We're getting audited. What happened? What was wrong with the return? We gave you everything. What happened here? And so it's often the case that the taxpayer will take that position, go back to the accountant, and the accountant will handle the audit. And so why that can be difficult is a couple of things. One is there could have been a mistake on the return. There could have been an issue that has arisen in the preparation of the return itself. And so sometimes I found that the tax return professional is focused on that aspect and the taxpayer can be confused as to what is really going on. There could also be an issue with the information that the taxpayer provided versus what the tax return preparer claims was provided. And then you have 
this question of, well, did the taxpayer provide all of the requisite information to file the return? And in fact, if the service is alleging that there was an underreporting of income, the service may have or may at some point in the audit propose a penalty for failure to report income, underreporting of income, the accuracy of the return, the missing understanding or ill knowledge of the law, right? And those penalties can be abated if there are, depending on the penalty imposed or proposed, the reliance on a taxpayer's professional. So it can create some tension in the audit as well. The third reason I think that you want to be cognizant of going to the tax return preparer, and certainly we do as counsel go to the return preparer and ask questions often in an audit, is because of attorney-client privilege. Tax return preparers do have a modicum of privilege under Code Section 7525. However, it is certainly not as verbose and stalwart, I should say, is the attorney-client privilege that's available to lawyers and their clients. And so we have to recall that what you discuss with your tax return preparer may in fact not be privileged. And if there is an issue with the audit or a question of, and the review of the return intent, you know, this may cause any conversations with the tax return preparer to not benefit and be afforded that privilege. So those are things to keep in mind. That doesn't mean to say you shouldn't go to the tax return preparer and say what happened, let's clear this up. But in a correspondence audit where the IRS is simply saying, hey, we're not really sure about your report of this. We think you have additional income. We're not quite sure about your treatment of this item. Please explain more. You and the tax return preparer can probably respond to a correspondence audit just fine. Just be mindful of the, you know, those issues about confidentiality, attorney-client privilege, and you know, differing sort of perspectives of the audit. When you undergo an audit that is an office audit, which is where the IRS says, look, we have assigned your audit to a specific IRS office, and an auditor is going to ask that you bring information to him or her to review a field audit where the IRS agent actually schedules an interview and a tour perhaps of the workplace, of the taxpayer's business, of the taxpayer's home. These audits, I think, office audits, field audits, where there are questions, there are visits, there are taxpayer interviews, those are the audits where I certainly think counsel should be retained. And so I think the first thing you should do is sort of assess what is going on. What are the years under audit? The lawyer can help you work with the understanding of the statutes of limitations. The IRS is limited. One thing I want your listeners to know and everybody to know is that the IRS has under statute three years from the date the return is filed to assess tax relevant to that return. And so in the construct of estate and gift tax returns, that statute cannot be extended. And so if you're dealing with a 706, not a 709, but in the 706 return, you cannot elect to extend the statute, even if both parties want to do so. It's just not statutorily plausible or feasible. And so because you need a year left on the statute of limitations for the taxpayer to go before the Independent Office of Appeals to review the findings of an audit, which we can talk about, you know, most estate and gift tax audits, which are initiated about 14 months after the return is filed, happen quite quickly, typically take the position that the service believes that there is additional tax to be owed. And then you end up having to go into a tax court filing posture where you file a petition to the tax court to challenge the results of the estate and gift tax examination level, right? And then you go into tax court, you have what's called post-docketing appeal rights, where you talk with the service after the, the petition's filed. In traditional audits, so 1040s, 1065 audits, the partnership audit, even under BBA, the statute of limitations on the assessment of tax can be extended by request of the taxing agency. The IRS can request the taxpayer extend the statute of limitations to assess the tax. Those terms are negotiable. You do not have to extend the statute of limitations, you know, for two or three years. The service and the agents will, in my experience, want as much time as possible because of the administrative um, backlog and because of the pace that the service can work at. But the taxpayer can negotiate with the taxing authority and with the IRS agent the amount of time to extend the statute of limitations. 
but you can extend the statute. So it's not uncommon in an office or field audit for those audits, especially in complex cases, to go on a year, two years, even more before you get to the point where the examiner has an exam report issued and you then contemplate going before the IRS Office of Appeals or using the fast track settlement program or some other type of program to to resolve the audit. And the last thing I'll say, and I I know that we talked about this too in in preparation for the conversation, is it's really, really important if you are the taxpayer on the other side, no matter who you use, whether you hire me, you hire another one of my professional colleagues who are out there doing this type of work, that you be very forthcoming with your attorney. And that's why I think that you have the benefit and blessing of attorney-client privilege, right? Now, of course, the crime fraud exception and other exceptions do apply. So I'm certainly not saying that attorney-client privilege doesn't have its limits. We all know that it does. But typically speaking, you know, being able to be candid and talk with your attorney with the benefit of attorney-client privilege can be very helpful and beneficial. And I will say that to that end, it's imperative to really, and I, I say this, but I know it is a matter of trust and candor and comfort. Sometimes I say, and I don't mean it to make a light of a situation, but I often say clients sometimes tell us the truth on the installment method, which is sort of an accounting tax joke, right? But it can be the case where a client just doesn't, you know, there's this element of guilt and pride and shame that sometimes clients will have about something that they may have known about or suspected or they could have looked into and didn't, or they simply didn't know. That's sometimes the worst. They beat themselves up because they just didn't know something and they relied on their tax return preparer. And that's 99.9999% of the cases that we see. But it's still imperative that you give your tax attorney all of the relevant information, that you are consistent, that if you tell the service one thing and one response, <laughs> you know, you're not taking an opposite position in another. This is it. Have you told us everything? Yes, we've told you everything. Now, remember, the IRS has at its disposal the ability to summon bank accounts. Like I said, follow the money. That's how they do it. They do it civilly that way and criminally that way. So if they follow the money and they find a document or indicia or evidence that something your client has said is not in accordance with the truth, (laughs) they will come back and ask you. And it will cast this pall on the balance of the audit of what has the taxpayer not been forthcoming about otherwise. And that is a really difficult pall to cast off. And so being clear, consistent, honest, and if there are inconsistencies, and look, I've had them happen. In the foreign bank account record cases, the FBAR cases, right? Taxpayer, have you told me about every single foreign account or asset that's income producing you've ever had? And certainly that you've had during the time that this audit is open. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. Taxpayer forgets. Oh, I forget. My mother put me on an account or my father gifted me, you know, a brokerage. Okay. Those things happen, right? Those things happen. And in my experience, the best thing you do is you go right to the service and you say, look, this information came to us and we're reporting it as soon as we discovered it. And that's always the best policy in those cases. I was going to say that whenever it's come across my desk, I say, look, this is a Band-Aid ripping off exercise. You To do this slowly, you think you can escape. It's just not feasible. And it's not smart because you're going to end up shooting yourself in the foot, if not in the initial part of the process, then in something later on, this is something, you know, it's, you know, if you saved for a rainy day, it's raining and it's raining now, get it on the table. And I think you bring up a really good point that, you know, you're dealing with human beings on the other side here, not just robots or AI, although they, you know, they'll probably start using that too, but you are dealing with other people and they are judging the type and quality of information and how it's presented. And those things count whether we think they do or don't. That's right. My head is not yet wrapped around the notion that the IRS will use AI to determine in a relevant taxpayer's case, you know, what they may have been told and what's likely that they were told or what's likely that they've done based on their inflows and outflows from their accounts. I believe that day is coming. It is just mind boggling to me (laughs) to sit and think about it. So, and I know it's far off. The government is just now sort of grappling with how to deal with digital assets issues of digital nomadacy, cryptocurrency, 
foreign bank accounts still are issues. So I do believe maybe I'm naive or I'm just an older person that it's not ready to grapple with AI as thoroughly as I know it, the time is coming soon. But I, I don't think that that time is, is nigh, right? I think that in the future, you're right, those things will come up. And they certainly will be tools. And I think the service, like I said, I think uh, Commissioner Reddick, I think the current commissioner and commissioners to come will all be focused on where technology can help the service determine taxpayer compliance in a more efficient and effective manner. If that wouldn't be the mission of the service, I would be shocked. I have no reason to say right now, don't worry, there's no AI generated audit. I have no basis to think that that's true or not true. I would say that typically there is a bit of a learning curve that we see in the government when it comes to using these types of technologies. So the IRS gives you the bad news that you owe more. Number one, how do you appeal that if that's a possibility? And two, what happens if you don't have it? Sure. So let's say that the audit has resolved and the taxpayer has been presented with this notice of proposed adjustment. And the taxpayer does still have the ability administratively by right to contest that position. There are a couple ways. Like I said, if you have time left on the statute, if you have a year left on the statute to assess tax, you can request that your case be heard by the IRS Independent Office of Appeals. That office, its mission and goal and function is to determine whether or not a mistake has occurred at the exam level. That is what it's looking for. It's not there to re-audit you. It's simply there to determine if exam has made a mistake in determining the amount that it proposes you owe the adjustment to your return. You can go to the Independent Office of Appeals traditionally, where you get your case assigned to an appeals officer and work with that appeals officer to determine if exam aired, if they did, what should the adjustment be and resolve it that way. There are some alternative resolution mechanisms that I've used and others have used that are not common, but are really effective. One is the fast track appeals process where the IRS and the taxpayer agree to enter into a a resolution of any issues with the exam within 120 days. And you go into really is a quasi-mediation process that can be really effective. If you get a good fast track appellate conferee, it can be a great experience for the taxpayer and for the service. Let's say that you go through appeals and you still disagree, right? You still don't like the result and that can be the case. What's your option then? You have a couple of options. One is you can pay the tax and you can sue for a refund in federal district court. That is subject to statutes of limitation on when you can sue. However, it is probably not the most tenable option for a lot of people because they have to pay the tax penalty and interest prior to their ability to sue in federal district court. A much more common and aptly used avenue is to have the taxpayer go into the U.S. tax court to then contest the notice, what's called a statutory notice of deficiency. That's issued after basically you've gone through exam, you're out of statutory time, or you've gone through appeals and you've reached a position where you you and the service can't agree on the result. So you can, for the low cost of $60, still think it's a very tenable petition fee, file a petition with the U.S. tax court where you petition for redetermination of the deficiency of the tax that's owed. You can also contest penalties. Interest is statutory. So if there is, in fact, an increase to tax owed, there really isn't the ability to contest the interest. There are some cases where delay can cause there to be grounds for abatement of interest. And those are cases you should certainly talk with a tax practitioner about. So those are sort of the ways that you can resolve a case after you come out of exam and still don't like the result or still don't agree with the result, right? Go to U.S. tax court. Court of federal claims is, is also available as well as the court, the federal district court for a refund litigation. All tax, although tax court will mainly be where you're headed. But let's say you go through either tax court or court of federal claims on some issue, or most commonly, you know, you end the examination, you get a statutory notice of deficiency and you owe, you know, $100,000 as an example. What if you don't have it, like you said? So there are a couple of options. So after your amount of adjustment, your additional tax is determined by exam and you receive the statutory notice of deficiency, like I said, you have 90 days to petition the U.S. tax court. You know, file the $60, file your petition for redetermination. You have 120 days if you're actually out of the United States. So that's a longer period. So let's say within the 90 days of filing, if you're in the U.S., it's 120 if you're outside of the U.S. for tax court. If you don't file a tax court petition, 
and the tax is assessed, the matter is no longer with exam. So exam is done, Office of Appeals, they are done. Your tax liability now moves into a totally different area of the service called collections, okay? Collections job is just that, it's to collect tax. That is what they do, that is all they do. And in collection of tax, there are some options available to a taxpayer. One is to enter into an installment agreement. Now, if you can pay off the tax, the full amount that you owe, let's say this $100,000 of additional tax that you owe, including penalties and interest, you can pay that off in six months. Typically, you can tell the service that. And if it's within a year that you can pay off the amount, the service will let you make payments and, and they're not going to go forward and garnish your wages, garnish bank accounts, put liens and levies. They may, in fact, file a tax lien against your assets if, in fact, the amount that you owe is over $100,000. That's very typical. There's no threshold for this, but I often find in my cases that when a taxpayer owes $100,000 or more, there's absolutely a tax lien. Now, are there mechanisms that you can use to have removal of a lien or subordination of a lien? Absolutely. We've done that in many cases, depending on the facts and circumstances, but typically $100,000 or more, you're going to have tax lien. And that can create some real issues for clients, especially clients that are relying on assets that are under now a tax lien to guarantee other loans or for borrowing purposes. So there certainly are some things you can do because the IRS doesn't want to inhibit your ability to make income that would then be used to pay off your tax liability. So depending on the facts and circumstances, we can try to get you know, subordination, release or removal of liens. And I've been successful in all of those endeavors. But until the tax liability is paid off, the lien will persist. And so what do you do then? Well, like I said, within a year, six months, typically the IRS will let you make payments and they won't initiate levy actions where they're now going to try to freeze your money or take your assets to pay this liability off. Greater than a year, and that's often the case where the taxpayer needs up to the full 60 months to pay off the liability, the IRS is going to want to know why. Okay. And so there are a series of forms, the series 433 forms, where the government asks the taxpayer for information about basically its financial health, its assets, its budget. And I have had many clients go through this process. And what I will tell you again here, just like in an audit, is candor and being forthcoming and being honest is important. So taxpayers generally, like anyone, don't want their lifestyles impacted, don't want their lives to be disrupted in any way. But when you owe the federal government money and you owe a tax debt, obviously you're going to have to change your lifestyle in order to pay that off. And so taxpayers are always sort of bewildered at the fact that they have to tell the federal government you know, how much they spend on clothing and food and leisure and recreation a month, and then are upset when the government says, we're not going to allow you that amount of money. Some of that has a basis in some fairness to the taxpayer, because a lot of those indices for living are old. I mean, you'd be shocked if I told you what the IRS thinks somebody can live off of in Manhattan, right? But however, there's a point to it. And the point to it is the government wants to make sure that its debts get satisfied before your cappuccino, daily cappuccino habit gets satisfied, if you will. So, <laughs> right. you know, there's this inquiry that the client has to do. And that's painful because the client won't want to tell you everything. This is not the moment to hide assets. The government can know and can find all of this information. Share all your bank accounts, share what you have access to, share what your real obligations and debts are. Unfortunately, things like college tuition for your kids or private school payments are not deemed necessary. I've had cases where we've argued that children have been in certain schools and those schools are necessary for their mental health or well-being. And I've had sympathetic agents in those cases, collection agents in those cases, and we've been able to get some success there. But typically speaking, you know, the IRS wants you to treat it like it's debtor number one. And in many cases it is because you may have prior perfected and secured debts and obligations, but oftentimes the government's priority in terms of its tax lien against your assets, as I was saying before, is first in time. Coming up with a payment plan based on your income, based on your assets, your resources available, is very individual, of course. The most time that I've ever gotten a payment plan, I think, is for the 60 months. I think in actuality, it's been a little bit more than that due to the time that we've negotiated the parts of the plan. If you default on an installment agreement, plan, it can trigger collection of the full amount in TOTA. So making sure as 
taxpayer, you're going to do what you say you're going to do. And if you can't tell the government so you can modify that installment plan is very key and critical. The other thing I will tell you, and taxpayers don't know this, and a lot of practitioners don't know the rule if they don't practice in this area, is that when you file a tax return in the next year and you report tax that's due and owing and you don't have the money to pay it, because it can be cyclical, right? Like the taxpayer that has a debt from an audit is paying that debt off. They're using that money to pay that debt off. They may be, especially if they're self-employed, you know, not withholding enough tax. They're not paying back into the system and it becomes a cycle. So you want to try to avoid that, obviously, first. And that's a lifestyle adjustment, which is always hard to get the client to do. But know that if you file a return, you show tax due and owing, and then you don't pay it, that is an element of default on the installment agreement. So you want to avoid that as well. So the other last thing I'll say real quick, Frazier, is you can make an offer in compromise. I think anybody who's listened to satellite radio in the last five years has heard these commercials, right, for firms that that engage in this type of work. Caveat emptor on those. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But you can make an offer in compromise. An offer in compromise really, though, is successful if it can be shown that due to your financial health, your facts and circumstances, et cetera, there's no way the IRS within the statute of limitations on collections, which is 10 years, which can be extended. And ultimately, the service can file a court case to reduce the amount owed to a judgment in federal district court. But irrespective, if the government thinks that you can't pay off the amount that you owe within a reasonable period of time, i.e. 10 years, they may accept a lower amount to settle the case out. That's called an offer and compromise. It really does look at a host of factors. It's not as easy as those commercials make it seem. I know that's probably shocking to your listeners, but it really does depend on looking at the overall health and the financial acumen, the ability to get money from the taxpayer and their earning potential. So there are a lot of factors that are considered, but it may be something that you can do. Yeah, I was going to say the IRS has all the leverage. They can put a tax lien on it. Why would they give that away unless it just is glaringly obvious that the money is just never going to be there? That's right. That's right. So we've gotten to this point. What do you tell your clients when you close the file on a particular audit, when you sort of go through and maybe do a postmortem on what can be done to avoid this in the future and any sort of lessons learned so that the taxpayer is at the very minimum wiser, if not a little bit poorer for the exercise, and they can avoid it going forward? Sure. I actually don't wait to do that postmortem. I do it during the audit because often what the service is looking at in terms of the position on a deduction or a character of income or underreporting could not just be happening for the year that the service is selected for audit, but could be happening for the years antecedent to that, right? So you could have the taxpayers that are audited for 2021. This position was the same position on the 20 return. The service may move quickly in the audit to open that year, right? They may say, okay, we're going to expand the audit and go for that year because the statute's running out. You also can have taxpayers, of course, who then sort of as a coda follow that same strategy or perspective on the subsequent year. So your taxpayers audited for 21, the position was the same on 22, and you haven't filed 23 yet because it's on extension. For example, at the time that we're talking, this is July of 23, you know, if the taxpayers on extension for the return, you have the opportunity to go in and say, all right, what do we need to do? So I actually approach this is something we take up kind of during the audit process and say, how large is the scope of this issue? The service will not be limited to just one year if they think the issue persists over a period of time that's reasonably within the statute. But you're right though, during audits, you are really focused on that tax year. So from practice right now, you know, I have a matter where adjustments are being made for a series of years and it's an issue where I think the taxpayer filed the return correctly and accurately. But because of the nature of the issue, this is going to be a point probably of contention with the service that they're going to look at. They're going to look at this issue with other taxpayers, not just this taxpayer. They're looking at it sort of across the spectrum of family offices, right? And so one of the things you may want to think about is to the taxpayer, what are we doing now? What are we doing today? And how does this audit and its result inform our view of the return and the way that you've structured your business today. And it very well could be that it's a development of law. Like for example, in this issue of family office deductions, we did not 10 years ago have 
lender management or Hellman's. Hellman's, of course, being the case that was resolved by compromise at the tax court lender being the case that we have a reported decision on. And so the question is, how do we structure a family office? And especially in light of the fact that the 212 deductions and the personal deductions were limited under TCJA, right? And so we see this issue that's cropped up, and I think it can inform how the taxpayer may view their business. It may not change anything because the taxpayer believes the position is correct, but you may have some information and insight coming out of exam that causes the taxpayer to change the manner of their business. And that's, again, a good reason why you should have your tax attorneys working with the taxpayer who can work with the taxpayer to make sure that appropriate modifications and adjustments in their business, their reporting, their conduction of their affairs are made. That's absolutely key and critical in the postmortem phase to say, what is the impact on you? What is the result here? Is this still the same law? You know, Has law changed? Would there be the same result today based on how you reported? Maybe there's a change in reporting. Maybe you don't have this income issue. Maybe it was one year only. But it is key and critical and I think imperative to sit down with a taxpayer you know, under that attorney-client relationship and really evaluate what the impact of the audit will be on the taxpayer for the years subsequent to that audit. Kelly, this has been incredibly in-depth and just terrific information. I think that listeners are going to be extremely well-educated after hearing this. I think there's so many... I don't know, bromides out there or rules of thumb that just are inaccurate. And I think this has been incredibly helpful. How do we find you in the web? How do we stay in touch? How do listeners find you, especially if they think they might have an issue? Absolutely. I'm always delighted to speak with any taxpayer. And if I can't help a taxpayer, if it's not an area of my focus or there's some issue that I think I know another practitioner really focuses on, my job is to find you the right tax lawyer and the right accounting team to support you. But I am, as I like to say, I'm the only Kelly Miller at Reed Smith. I've been a partner at Reed Smith and in practice at Reed Smith for almost 15 years. I'm resident in our Washington, D.C. office. I'm available at K Miller, K M I L L E R, at Reed Smith. It's R E E D S M I T H dot com. And I'd be delighted to hear from anyone if they have questions or comments or concerns about any audits or correspondence they have with the service. Kelly, thanks so much. And that information will be in the show notes. Happy hunting out there. And hopefully your clients are, they're well-behaved that when the issues come up, you got them on the right track. Thank you so much, Frazier. It was such a delight to speak with you. And thank you for all that you do and the good information you share. I so appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Fraser Rice is an employee of Next Capital Management, LLC. This podcast is not investment, legal, or tax advice, nor does it reflect the opinions of Next Capital Management. Any opinions represented in the show are Fraser's individually and not an endorsement of the guests.